0: Hi there, Duncan Green here. All bunged up with cold, I'm afraid. It's the traditional start of winter. Cold, but there we go. Nothing too serious and it doesn't stop me rounding up this week's posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm having fun with the blog. I've been too busy with other things like the um, the Influencing Training course I've been de- delivering to really engage with the blog in the last couple of months. But now I'm back home, bit of slack time and really enjoying uh, going back into the blog. So I uh, started off with links I liked. Uh, one particular thing struck me, a photo from Denmark, which says in Denmark, there are libraries where you can borrow a person instead of a book to listen to their life story for 30 minutes. The goal is to fight prejudice. Each person has a title, unemployed, refugee, bipolar, etc. But listening to their story, you realize how much you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. This innovative project is active in 85 plus countries. It's called the Human Library. What a great idea, I I think. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, Reminds me a bit of Rowan Krasnarich's Empathy Museum where he had the uh, shoes of refugees and so school kids could uh, try them on and and, uh, literally walk in the shoes of of people who'd fled their country. So very nice. Other links uh, and things on there as well. Next up, which governments do or don't care about inequality? And this is a post from Anthony Commande oxfam's inequality research coordinator uh, to puff a new uh, the, the launch of oxfam's latest commitment to reduce inequality index so this is an index that oxfam has published several times which tries to work out um, with development finance international and other NGO um, how committed governments are to reducing inequality so here's what Anthony writes As I sat down to write this article, I reflected a little bit on the power of public services. The fifth born in a family of eight siblings, I'm the first to have completed secondary education and the first to have gone through university. All my other elder siblings stopped at the primary level except one that dropped out midway through his secondary education because of a lack of fees. I was able to do this only because the government introduced free public primary education in 2003 the year I started my primary schooling and three days secondary education in 2008. Though free, parents have to close the teaching gap by hiring extra teachers. That is a heavy burden on poor households. I nearly dropped out of high school in the third year because of a financial burden of under $100 a year. I was lucky to get a scholarship from Wazesha Education Foundation, a charity, before I had to quit. Otherwise, you would not be reading this article. Yet yeah, today, Thousands of students from the poorest households around the world, like my siblings, are being denied an opportunity to pursue their dreams because of the wrong policy choices our government has been making. There are not many charities to offer them a scholarship which is in itself a sign of the government's failure. Today, Oxfam and Development Finance International released the fourth edition of the Commitment to Reducing Inequality Index which looks at policy actions that governments are taking in public services, education, health and social protection, along with taxation and labour rights to reduce inequality. Its findings are frankly appalling. Even after being faced with a once in a generation pandemic, most, generations have, sorry, most governments have failed to make the right policy choices. Spending on healthcare, education and social protection is low and falling, denying billions of people access to decent essential services. The majority of workers, especially in the world's poorest countries, are exposed to exploitation as they lack formal contracts. Wages for average workers are declining, but governments are failing to adequately tax the richest and their corporations. But some countries are showing the way. The CRI index also shows that a few countries at all income levels are taking positive actions to reduce inequality. The occupied Palestinian territory increased health and social protection budgets, during the pandemic. South Korea increased tax on the richest and spending on health and social protection. In Latin America, Costa Rica increased the top top rate of personal income tax by 10 percentage points. These countries are showing us that inequality is a policy choice and action can be taken. On the other hand, other countries are moving in the opposite direction. France and Belgium cut corporate tax rates. Ghana cut spending share on education, health and social protection and the United States Failed to raise the federal minimum wage, which was last updated in 2009. And then he concludes, we have the solutions, but governments are failing to act. The government, the international community should step in with financial and technical support. This is some of the answers he's got. Debt cancellation, restructuring a long overdue. Another issue issuance of special drawing rights and an IMF financial asset is desirable but focusing on lower middle middle income countries. More aid should be directed to poor countries to fund the social sectors. Only then shall we be in the same sea and ship instead of some on yachts and the majority clinging to life rafts, trying not to drown." So that was a kind of model blog post in the sense that he led with a very personal reflection which brought the issues alive and then delivered the content from this uh, new league table report. So I thought it was a very good piece by Anthony there. The next post uh, was a blog, uh, was a podcast rather. Um, somebody at Oxfam said, you've got to talk to this guy. He's amazing. So I got in touch with William Shamali, who's the outgoing coordinator of the Global Protection Cluster. Not too promising on the face of it, but actually he was amazing. And so I uh, recorded a podcast with him and then did a transcript of the highlights and here uh, to go with it. And here are some of the highlights of the highlights. So here's William. Protection is the heart and soul of humanitarian action. It's basically to make sure that people are safe and living in dignity in times of crisis. Responding to issues related to safety and dignity when people are disappeared, detained, tortured, displaced, robbed of everything, requires a lot of interventions to deal with survivors of sexual harassment and assaults and crimes and kids being taken by armed groups. And this collectivity of action from prevention to response to actually telling the story and advocating requires a lot of actors to come together. In a place like Syria or Yemen or Venezuela today, there is a UN coordination mechanism, the Protection Cluster. We operate in about 30 countries around the world and we bring together more than 1,000 partners, largely people working in their own country, local partners. The job is to make sense of this massive energy of multiple actors coming together and get some common push to make things impactful for people who are stuck in these conflicts. The protection situation in the world is in bad shape. We count this year more than 150 million people in need of protection, the highest ever. This is driven by new crises like Ethiopia, Afghanistan, Ukraine, and Sudan, but it's also driven by having no solutions to all the stubborn crises like Syria, Yemen, or Congo. People are hit first time by the conflict, then second time by all the socioeconomic meltdown that comes in its wake, pushing them into very difficult decisions. The shield of self-protection and resilience is wearing thin after hit after hit on these communities. So then I said, okay, that's a pretty grim panorama. What have you seen, you know, positive? What's been, what's changed in the last few years? And he said, well, talking about success or good in this field becomes day after day, more remote. When we succeed in something, it's partial, marginal almost, but we have to keep telling some of the positive stories to keep rallying people to work in this field, to support people in their darkest hours. And I have seen some areas of protection response really becoming predictable, strong, having an impact. In Syria, we see much stronger family unification programs bringing kids back to their families. Much stronger engagement with armed groups and the military to stop children's recruitment. In Yemen and South Sudan, people born in displacement camps who didn't have any legal identities are now getting into the educational system or job markets. They are able to slide back into normality. We see a lot of focus on addressing sexual, viol- sexual violence and while I still believe it is our biggest, biggest failure, this is something that is at the top of the agenda of everyone. The machinery that is trying to prevent sexual violence that is standing by the survivors, giving them socioeconomic and psychosocial support is massive. Yet our impact in addressing it is still so marginal in places like Ethiopia, Sahel, Syria and Yemen. I also see very concrete progress in some areas of material safety and protection, like mine action, removing mines, or removing explosives from the ground to allow people to go back to school, to go back to markets, to hospitals. I see this push of professional, dedicated, predictable machineries addressing different parts of protection functioning well. It has many organisations that are dedicated to that, many thousands of staff that are passionate and really trying to do their best. But in a bigger sense, I think humanitarian aid has shifted from a place where the main story was material needs, people losing their homes, people need food, people have their home schools bombed, to a place where dignity and rights have come to the centre. If we listen to the media, to the plans to where the budgets of the humanitarian actors are going, definitely protection is gaining ground. Over the last three years we went from a global budget for protection work of about 450 million to this year about $1.4 billion. So I asked him whether the humanitarian section, uh, humanitarian sector, has made progress in in being able to to actually change government policies. I think it's fair to say that organisations like the Red Cross, Geneva Call, the UNHCR, the World Food Programme, uh, Norwegian uh, Refugee Council have definitely grown in expertise in diplomatic negotiations that allow programmes to operate on the ground in a comprehensive way. Humanitarian aid has shifted from a place where the main story was material needs, to a place where dignity and rights have come to the centre. However, out of the 150 million people today in need of protection, we collectively, local actors, international actors, you and NGOs, everyone, can best access comfortably 50 million of them. So we're leaving 100 million people without any decent chance to receive any support. What does that mean? It, it means that being able to, to to be in the communities, to monitor the situation, to talk to the army groups, to try and change behavior, to identify children that are being recruited or girls that have been married off or survivors of sexual violence. That takes time, trust, presence on the ground. But instead, we see a tendency to use humanitarian access negotiations to deliver materials. We count our access to Tigray or to Northwest Syria by the number of trucks that have come in. These trucks are crucial they carry life-saving food and medicine, but it's not enough. Our collective humanitarian advocacy style and needs uh, needs to be more holistic from a protection sense, which kind of brought us to a discussion on localization, yeah, the topic of the day. And William said, "Well, we talk a good game, and we've made some progress. Out of our global budget for protection, twenty-five percent of that one point four billion goes to local partners." Um, which is a major achievement, and we're far, ahead, yeah. We're, but we're still far from where we should be. We've hit the target for the grand from the grand bargain, that global agreement on humanitarian, which put a 25% target on localisation, But our sector has to be fully driven by local actors. We have 1,400 members across 30 operations. 90% of these members are local organisations. So I would expect 90% of our budget to go to them, not 25%. Final question for me. Do you think people working in protection realize how far they've come in terms of that overall budget, the increasing centrality of protection to humanitarian work? Protection workers are advocates, activists. We come from an underdog mentality where we believe that people don't want to talk about our issues, don't want to talk about sexual violence and children's recruitment, racism or inter-ethnic conflict. So we come to the table expecting that these things will be swept under the carpet. But the protection sector today is one of the most robust humanitarian sectors. The amount of conventions, resolutions from the UN Security Council, the Human Rights Council, local constitutional frameworks and other initiatives in support of protection. The number of organisations that have a protection mandate is also quite impressive, from child protection to protection of civilians and so on. So the number of dedicated experts, staff, budget time, technical know-how on protection issues is phenomenal. Yet today, we're still stuck in this mentality that we are underfunded and that we are underrepresented and no one is raising our issues. I think our approach should move and embody a can-do attitude. We are at the table, we are recognised. And yes, we need to push forward, but we're no longer an underdog outside that uh, outsider that needs to fight for the space. We own the space, so let's lead. And then I asked him if he had any final words and he got very lyrical. I want to end by saying one of my biggest learnings from engaging with people fleeing from conflicts and disasters. Those individuals have lost a lot, sometimes everything, but they haven't lost their story. We as humanitarians, as protection actors, we can give them a lot, but we should never ever contribute to them losing their story. That story should be told. Silence about what happened to them should never reign and we should never be part of letting that silence reign. We should always, always tell the truth, sometimes loud, sometimes in a whisper, I get that, but never let the silence reign. Fantastic way to end. Thank you, William, very much. I'm sure you'll be greatly missed at the uh, Global Protection Cluster and greatly appreciated by wherever you end up next. Final post of the week was something from me, What should international NGOs do when civic space is closing around them? So we had really interesting conversations last week and I can't tell you where or who or or anything because it was Chatham House rule. But because of Chatham House rule, I can say what was said. So some headlines. In India and probably many other countries, the attack on civil society organisations is just one facet of a wider offensive against liberal democracy and liberal values. Elsewhere, elsewhere, it is just one part of the Bolsonaro-Duterte-Trump-type assault on any source of criticism and opposition. Second, it's not just about governments. In Bangladesh or Pakistan, if you blog, someone could kill you for saying something they disagree with. Where the conversation got interesting for me was when we got to the so-whats. Firstly, the need to be credible and legitimate, necessary in itself, and also to help reduce, though not eliminate, the risk of being closed down or worse. For international NGOs, that means being connected with the pain of the country. And that's a quote from one of the speakers. Secondly, some more practical advice, also for INGOs mainly, although also for local ones. Avoid inflammatory job titles like policy or advocacy, let alone campaigns. Keep things as technical as possible. Tell officials, I work on the SDGs because no one understands what they're about. That gave me a laugh. Assume you are under surveillance. Use multiple phones. This is the daily reality for NGOs working in an increasing number of countries. Speaking together is safer than speaking alone. Pay a lot of attention to when it's better to go unbranded and when on the contrary, using your brand might afford some protection to partners who are risking their necks. Invest in getting the right messengers to talk to decision makers. Who do they fear or respect? Non-INGO people, Non-NGO people are often better for this if you can persuade them to help. Be patient and ready to wait for better times. Local partners advise on how they weather the cycle of atrocity and wickedness. Another quote. Digging in for the long haul, finding pockets of hope and survival. Better monitoring of, of emerging crises. We can't wait till someone gets hurt. Instead, look for signs of a progressive weakening of social empathy, polarization and violence that can tell you dark days lie ahead. This is pretty serious and distressing stuff. Third, there's a trade-off here that every organization and individual must wrestle with. Do we live with closing space and shut up in order to maintain access, for example, for humanitarian relief, or do we speak out at increased risk? At some point, speaking truth to power may be so essential to an organization's mission and identity or those of its partners that risking being banned, exiled, etc., is necessary, but do so with eyes open rather than by accident. If there's no quick fix, we're talking about investing in young people and new ideas, including helping build a new culture of politics that does not contribute to the levels of entrenched polarization that we now experience. Entrenched and growing polarization. But that idea poses some big challenges to conventional campaigning. When I got to Oxfam, I was taken to one side and handed the secret sauce of a successful campaign. You need a problem, a solution and a villain. Heroes are optional. But if that recipe, even if it works for an individual campaign, contributes to polarisation and othering, what then? It's a bit like the debate on poverty porn. Images of malnourished children may raise more money in the short term. But what are the long term impact uh, on norms and uh, and politics? On the other hand, with such a noisy media environment, some kind of, ooh, let's all hold hands and imagine a better future narrative is likely to sink without trace, as Oxfam found to its cost with some of its previous uh, more positive campaigns. In a follow-up email, one of the participants elaborated on this point. You can't just put out these let's all change the world statements. Everyone use less energy, everyone fight inequality. You have to create the detailed local infrastructure and building blocks that make that tangible in people's daily lives. My point being that when we talk about closing civic space, we are saying that the civic space we are used to fighting in, the air wars, isn't working for us anymore. And rather than just think of different tactics in that space, we have to do the hard work of actually building, creating, carving out the spaces again that we want to use. And on that rather insightful note, I will say goodbye. Have a great weekend, and I'm sure we'll be talking next week. Bye.